All righty. Welcome back, guys. Another episode of the AltMed podcast. So delighted to have you back. And, you know, for those who are getting something out of this and haven't yet hit subscribe on our YouTube channel, um, please do so. Give us a like on Facebook and all our socials. Uh, Mitch, any other comment you'd like to make before we dive in and introduce our guest? I'm just stoked that you remembered it this week. That was fantastic. <laughs> well done. Mate, um, I, I, yeah, I didn't have a um, like a little placard to hold up this week. I, I really that's that's next week. But no, you've done uh, us proud. Well done. Thank you. Um, it is g- my genuine pleasure to introduce our guest today. Uh, one of the first doctors that we started speaking to when we got involved in this space. His you know his profile since we first began chatting has hit meteoric heights. Um, it is Dr. Maddie Moore based over in WA. Welcome to the show, Maddie. Boys, it's a pleasure. The pleasure's mine. You know, the first time that we got on, um, you know, video chat together, it was like, you know, two of my best friends from home. It was fantastic. <laughs> and look, I, lo- I love seeing what you guys are doing. I love, um, you know, how you're uh, moving the space forward. And it's great to see and hear about the future of what you guys are doing. So the pleasure's mine. Uh, thank you very much, Maddie. I mean, you were probably, I'm, I'm just trying to place this from a timeline perspective. Were you the very first specialist cannabis doctor in WA or thereabouts? Honestly, I don't know. I, I, I probably not. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know really for a fact, but um, I know that in my area, I'm certainly the only guy that's really dedicating as much time to um, education and, and certainly get, getting more, more patients um, access to medicinal cannabis. So honestly, I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I think I was one of, at the time, one of maybe 60 APs in the country. Yeah. And no, now I, mean, I, think, I think it's about 200, maybe if, if not that almost. Yeah. Well, we're going to just say that you were the first. I okay. Mean, <laughs> I'm the trendsetter. <laughs> um, and maybe before we dive in and, you know, start throwing some questions at you that we get from the community, um, maybe just if you could take us through a bit of your background, how you got into the space yeah, and your, your passion. Absolutely. So born and raised in, in Austin, Texas, which is a, a great city. If you've never been over to the States, Austin is, is a, a really funky place. And um, certainly liberal, um, left liberal, not right liberal, Australian <laughs> liberal. Um, but um, yeah, look, I, I've always wanted to be a GP from when I was a kid. I had a very influential GP myself, and also a couple of um, my best friend's fathers were doctors, so it's always been something that I wanted to do. Um, you know, tried to get into medical school a few times and had good entrance exams, but um, not great uh, college um, great. So a little bit of a delay there. I went, uh, I finally just said, Hey, um, I'm going to get this done. I went to a Caribbean medical school on an Island called, um, Dominica, which is in the, uh, westward, um, you know, leeward islands. And it's between Martinique and Guadeloupe. Great place to go to medical school. I was, I was in the water and hiking, um, more than I was in class, to be honest, but I did. Is that a photo of the Island behind you, by the way? I'm just, uh, no, that's, that's, that's rotten nest, which is, oh, that's nest. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, now I've got, I've got plenty of good pictures to show you of Dominique at some point, but, um, and then did, did clinical rotations in the States and, and really, uh, set up all my rotations myself. 
one of which was um, in Wyoming and uh, ended up doing residency in, you know, cowboy country north of Colorado. And so at the time of residency, stuff was kicking off um, as far as medicinal cannabis. So then I um, had plenty of patients who basically went interstate, got a medicinal cannabis card and, um, and kind of had my eye on it since then. And so in 2016, when, when it uh, kicked off here in Australia, um, certainly was paying attention, but didn't get into it really until later on, um, I started prescribing with a, a local pain specialist. And then the legislation went through for GPs to do it by themselves. So that's when I really started doing it um, almost exclusively. I still have GP patients, but um, you know my GP spots are less and less every week just because it's gaining favor and um, you know grassroots and you know um, you know the good the good data that we're getting is is uh, getting out there. So that's when really when I started um, you know seeing uh, the anecdotal evidence and the motivation to, to really help people through this um, new non-conventional avenue. Nice. Amazing. Yeah. So, it, and then the, I, I guess, coming to Australia and seeing this industry start from a, a position quite a bit further back than, you know, yeah. where you'd come from in North America, um, you know, what's your kind of sense of how it's been done here? Do you feel like? I think it's way better, to be honest. Okay. Um, you know, yes, it's more, more regulated and um, access is, is, is more difficult, but I think that's a very good thing because of how the TGA is, is getting that data and we're all compiling it instead of giving our patients a medicinal cannabis card. And then that's the extent of our influence. You know, there was no management for those patients. They went to the dispensaries and got whatever they wanted. And, and therefore, you know, that ability to gather the data to really back it as a, a conventional therapy or a first line therapy like the TGA is doing, we didn't have in the States. So I think it's, it's, it's a better system here. Yeah, nice. Very uh, interesting. And, you know, what are the, since you have, you know, gone out and, uh, you know, done the specialist cannabis clinic, what are a lot of the people who come to see you, what are they coming to you for? Oh, I think, I think same as most folks who are prescribing cannabis around the nation, you know, for the most part, it's chronic pain, intractable, you know, chronic pain whether that be fibromyalgia, you know, rheumatoid conditions, chronic osteoarthritis, um, but it's also cancer pain and, and treating, you know, patients for symptoms due to that cancer treatment. Um, you know, you've got your psychological uh, or mental health issues, anxiety, PTSD, insomnia. So th those are, those are really common in my, in my clinics too. So, um, not really anything different, but mo for the most part, it's, it's chronic pain patients over 60 conservative who've, who've run out of options. Hmm. Are you finding that it, it's, it's in your experience, it's, it's an effective treatment? I do. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's allowing one, one medication to hit potentially multiple indications, um, getting rid of polypharmacy. Certainly those folks with chronic pain who are on, you know, opiates who are on neuropathic pain medications like Lyrica, um, you know, and benzodiazepines for 
you know, from muscular spasms and, um, you know, insomnia because of their pain. So it's, it has been a very effective um, management strategy for those people. No, it's not, it doesn't work for everybody. You know, I would say probably 20, 20% drop off due to, you know, cost due to ineffectiveness um, or, or other reasons. But for those 75% that, it, that continue on it, they're super happy. They're, they're sleeping like they've never slept before. They're, they're able to, to get done those things during the day that they hadn't been able to do. And that, that quality of life increase is priceless. No, totally. Yeah. I didn't actually consider the the polypharmacy angle. And I, I know that, I mean, you mentioned for some of that 25% of patients that come to see you, cost is prohibitive. I know that there mm-hmm. are private health funds that are trying to assist. Right now. Yep. And that's, that's all really good stuff. But I, I can sort of start to appreciate that, yeah, for the person who has, you know, the benzos for their anxiety, you know, the Lyrica for their neuropathic pain, um, strong opioids, I know some of these are, you know, subsidized medicines in Australia, but the costs really would add up. And if you're able to just take a single product, right, it's um, that really is a game changer. It is. And, and they, they like it. They, they're proud of themselves when they come off of those medications because, you know, gosh, man, that, that's taking multiple medications that aren't working um, it begins to weigh on you, you know, and, and um, yeah, look, we're, we're, we're helping that in, in multiple um, avenues. And I've heard, I mean, I know there's been a lot of discussion around the dependency issues that come from medicines. Um, and I'm going to ask you about, you know, chronic pain, which has been in the news of late. Um, and then after that, I want to, you know, quiz you about just tolerances to medical cannabis. So sorry, I'm just laying that out um, oh, while no I'm thinking of it. But um, yeah, in the news, I read yesterday that the head of, um, the Australian New Zealand um, pain medicine um, had sort of come out and said, look, there's just not enough known about medical cannabis. Um, the clinical research is just not there. And as a result of that, um, you know, our organization is telling, you know, pain medicine clinicians that they shouldn't actually be prescribing medicinal cannabis really under any circumstances, except if patients are involved in a, in a clinical trial. What, um, what are your thoughts on that? Oh man, so many, it's hard to even get them out, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I, my first reaction was like, what, what, the heck, what the heck is he talking about? You know, like, uh, I think it's really dangerous what he did because, um, and it, it puts the patient um, back into a place where they're hiding what they're doing or, um, or feeling ashamed or, or feeling like, oh, maybe, maybe I can't do this. Maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. Well, in fact, I don't think he does. Um, and I'll say that outright. I, I think if he has a more patient focused um, perspective, um, then, then he, he'd be thinking about it differently. Okay, it's, 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 it's about our patients, number one, first and foremost. And, I, and I, I say that all the time. It's so important to listen. And you know, those, those medications that he's backing are not very good. In fact, there's data that shows that Lyrica has no, no real efficacy on neuropathic pain, yet they're still prescribing it. You know, they're still prescribing opiates that, that have toxicity and lethal doses, which cannabis doesn't. You know, the side effects for those are, are pretty bad. So 
when you look at it in a simple manner of comparing it from one to the other and saying that medicinal cannabis has no role, he is dead wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, you're basically saying that, you know, it, it has a role, whether he's sort of accepting of that fact or not. I mean, he's saying that its role should be confined to the research lab. And I think it was Professor Ian McGregor from the Lambert Initiative who came out and just said, look, that might well be his view. But the thing he has to contend with is that, you know, why would all of these patients continue to seek legal access to the products that they're already, you know, these medicinal cannabis products, that demand surely can't be explained. Very good point. There's no efficacy. And I guess, so it's almost ignoring a weight of anecdotal evidence. And I, I think there was also another point from um, Peter Kroc, mm. uh, you know, the, the head of the industry body about how this type of commentary just only further pushes people towards black market to potentially serve their needs. But if their pain doctor is saying to them, look, I, I would like to prescribe this to you, but you know, I'm not supposed to, so I'm not going to, they then have to get it from the black market. Is yeah, that- so he's not really, a, he's not poo-pooing it, but he's, he's pushing them into the green market, which mm. it, it can be dangerous. We don't, we don't know what's in, in those plants, pesticides, you know, um, actually the profiles, are they, are they, um, what is what's in them actually what they say is in them so yeah very very good point he makes Um, it's not only it's not only why so many people are still having this great demand for it but why are people paying the exorbitant fees that that cannabis comes with as well if it doesn't work so why are people spending hundreds of dollars a, a month sometimes a week you know uh depending on what products they're on or how much they require yeah, I mean, compared to a, yeah, compared to an opioid, which would be subsidized by the PBS and would be 20 bucks or whatever. But they, they pay $400 a consult for a pain specialist. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what, what are they talking about? Yeah. Like, you know, you're, you're looking at, at like every single month, the SASB approval rate goes up by a thousand patients. Mm. We've, we've got now what, um, 90,000 medicinal cannabis patients, something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, th- that right there shows that it's, it works. It's working for people. They're not going to pay for it unless it works. Yeah. Well, what's your view then? I mean, as a, you know, as a doctor, when you have someone that presents with chronic pain, I know that part of where medicinal cannabis is at at the moment is that it's, it's not intended to be a first line therapy, hmm. but you know, are you pretty cautious toward uh, opioids and prescribing patients opioids? Always. Yes. Always. You know um, I think very early in my training, I got, I had some experiences which were eye opening, and, um, and got to see really that the negative side of opiates yeah. Um, so I've been cautious ever since. And yes, there, there is, there is a role for opiates, but sure. But, um, it's not a reflex prescription for me. Yeah. I was actually, I was telling Mitch, I had some surgery last year, uh, late last year and just some shoulder surgery. And it was the anesthetist actually that said to me, you know, we're going to put you on some Oxycontin or whatever for, you know, up to two weeks post-surgery, we'll give you a little take home. Um, you know, little bag from the hospital with uh, with <laughs> your opioids, yeah. and he said to me, you know, more than ten days on on this stuff, and you're you're 
body's opioid receptors begin to form a dependency on these products. And I just found that quite eye-opening because nowhere on the, the pamphlet from the drug company or any no. of the information did it say anything about that. No, uh, and, you, and you, look at, you look at how, um, you know, at the lethal toxicity dosing for heroin and how dependent heroin is. And look, that's basically what it is. It's pill form of heroin. Um, and yeah, nobody's, nobody's giving you those, those black box warnings or, or, um, advice, yeah. um, which, which is scary. And yet, you know, people taking CBD for their pain for 10 days is, you know, there's no reported dependency that <laughs> it's coming out. So it's, yeah. Anyway, it's, no, it's, 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 it's night and day, buddy. It's on opposite ends of the spectrum as far as, um, risk. Definitely. Yeah. Well, where, you know, I suppose it's all part of the journey of medicinal cannabis. There's going to be different commentary from different, you know, subspecialties in, in sure. medicine. And, um, but no, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Now, in relation to medicinal cannabis, I wanted to ask about, you know, and it probably does follow on from opioids. You hear about people who have been managing their pain with, with those kinds of strong medications, how their tolerance increases because their body forms the dependency. Mm -hmm. Do you find that with medicinal cannabis, the dosing stays relatively flatline because there's no propensity for dependency or how does that, how does that work? In well, I, th I think for the most part, people um, stick with a certain ratio of whatever um, medicinal cannabis product we prescribe. There, there is some that do no tolerance and th those, I think that comes with the higher amounts of THC. It yeah. certainly has been with, with my folks. Um, so there, there are some percentages of patients whose doses do escalate a little bit. And yeah. so then, then we, we talk to them about tolerance breaks and, and, you know, give them helpful education and information on how to do that. And, and that tolerance break is very successful to reintroduce at lower doses and then their symptoms are controlled. So there, there is some, some um, down regulation of receptors in the brain to, to cannabinoids. Um, and I don't know the specific, the specific statistics on that, but I think for the most part, people's doses remain stable, but there are some that get tolerance. Okay. How does a tolerance break generally work? Like what's a, a typical tolerance break? Kind yeah, of look, I mean, I think very simply, it's abstinence from, from the product. Um, and for, for a certain amount of time, anywhere from two to six days, something like that, you know, it just depends on how many milligrams of THC they're, they're um, either ingesting or vaporizing or using in a day. Um, and then once, uh, you know, I, I counsel them on do, doing those other maintenance things that keep, keep them, uh, their body in, in good homeostasis, like meditation, exercise, good diet, hydration, sleep, and, and, and really appreciating their um, indication or their symptoms, as well as appreciating their medication, you know, um, and having a really respectful relationship with that and really kind of um, talking to them about that during that time. Um, and then re reintroducing cannabis, um, however long they have their abstinence at the end of that, introducing it at, gosh, half doses, even less, and then um, slowly increasing and then paying attention to their symptoms. And once their symptoms are controlled, then they 
continue that dosage. And it's usually a lot less than when they um, started their tolerance break. Is, I'm just curious, do you ever kind of switch up in that tolerance break if the pain is great, say, in, in a specific patient? Do you ever switch that up with more traditional medicine, say a Lyrica type thing or a, a, an Oxycontin type medicine? I don't, I don't, because I just don't want to, to introduce them and then have trouble getting them off of them right. again. Or, um, but for the most part, everybody that does the tolerance break makes it through the break. Yeah. And with reintroduction, they're, they're so much happier because they're using a lot less and that means a lot less money um, and, you know, a lot less uh, consultations with, with myself. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's typically how I do it, bro. So interestingly, like I, I hear we, we always talk or there seems to be a lot of talk about kind of traditional medicines like like oxycontins, for example, versus cannabis. And it seems to be this like kind of polarized scenario where it's like you're on one team sort of thing. Do you, is there any kind of room for them to work together or not really? Or is there different, say, different drugs that work better together, like SSRIs or, or things like that, like that you would suggest? I, I definitely think they can, they can work together. Absolutely. And those that, you know, I'd have to look up some of the specific studies for you and I'm happy to do that, but there are some that show uh, a lot of them, in fact, show that your, your, your opiate doses are greatly reduced in folks that, that have introduced cannabis as a therapy or doing it themselves. Um, so yeah, look, I think there's definitely room to be, to take both. Um, and there's plenty of anecdotal evidence, certainly with my patients, I've got many that have come completely off of their opiates. And this isn't, you know, endone five milligrams. This is Oxycontin forties, multiple times a day, along with Lyrica, along with benzodiazepines and slowly titrating them off each one at a time. And, and they stay off of them. So, um, yeah, look, I think, I don't know how many pain clinics are doing that or, or if there are. Um, I, I don't think there are many that are doing it in WA. Have you guys heard of any? I don't know about WA, but one of the other doctors that we've spoken to through our AltMed podcast series is uh, Dr. David Fang. And, and he spoke actually a little bit about this. And, yep. you know, the, I guess the sensitivities around, you know, it's, it's all well and good. And the patient might be on board to, to really give medicinal cannabis a try, but you know, that the managing uh, doctor kind of really needs to pay close attention to that process of weaning off at a stage by stage um, because mm -hmm. they can, you know, the withdrawal symptoms, a whole bunch of other things that can come. Super, super important. Like, yeah, that's, that's a real thing. And anytime you're taking patients off of opiates, you do it in a very slow um, controlled manner. And, and I usually mark out a plan and, and this is not weeks, this is months, you know, and plans on, and on a day-to-day -day basis so that people can see, you know, that their doses are escalating, they have some are uh, decreasing and they have something to follow visually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with them. Definitely. It's, it's a slow process and I do it one at a time over a long period of time. Yeah. Is, is, that the same, is that the same with with other drugs they might be on? Because the polypharmacy thing is really interesting. I mean, when you think about it, somebody with, you know, maybe a neurological disorder or Parkinson's or, or MS, you know, it's not just the relaxing of the muscles. It's also the pain. It's also potentially anxiety or depression that might come as a result of that condition. Totally. Um, Comorbidities, definitely. Yeah. So, so are you finding it's... but? 
with the other drugs, say for anxiety or, or, or uh, mental uh, situations, is it is it the same kind of thing? You like weaning off, or or can it be a more of a cold turkey scenario? Scenario. Well, you know, your your SSRIs or first line therapies for um, any of your mental mental health issues like depression, anxiety, you know, th- those um, you can titrate off of. Um, you know, pretty easily over uh, two to three weeks. And I, I do have a, you know, a, a titration schedule for that as well. And right. there's a few, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, niblets that, that, that I've been shown through just interactions with psychiatrists on how to do that with different medications. You know, the SNRIs tend to be a, a bit more difficult just with withdrawal, the brain zaps and, and dizziness. Um, but again, um, you know, I would do that slowly over, you know, weeks uh, rather than cold turkey because that can be very uh, unpleasant. Some of those withdrawal side effects. So there is is with the mental health medications, there are some withdrawal that that cannabis can really help, and I've seen it with my patients. Amazing. Good. Uh, definitely a more fun question here. Yeah. Top three questions you get asked from patients. Um, am I going to get uh, stoned? Uh, you know, how, how, um, you know, how expensive is it certainly is, is, you know, one of those top three and, um, you know, can, can I, can I drive with it? Mm. Yeah. The drive, the driving issue is, is a real one and and a frustrating one. Um, you know, because we're given, we're given access to this medicine, but on, on, on the other hand, we're dinged for it. Um, so there's a real, um, yeah, it's just a, a real disconnect there. I think, I think the drive change campaign will, will, will um, result in some standardization of THC levels for driving. You know, thank goodness Tom uh, Arkell and, and the gang at Lambert uh, came out with that stuff, which CBD has no effect on driving. You know, THC does for a certain amount of time. But, you know, even patients that, you know, stop their or, or skip their dose in the morning, can still get dinged with a, with a swab on the roadside that day. So it's not fair. Um, that, that's a real, that's the third question I get, I get asked a lot. I, actually, I've heard. I, yeah. Oh, you go, Mitch. That's right. I was just going to say, I've heard that they're just on the grapevine, don't quote me on this, but potentially up to 0.8 milligrams of THC. Some people have said that it doesn't really show up. Yeah, have you heard I've, that? I've heard that too. I don't, I don't have the data to, or specifics on exactly the milligrams, but I, I think it's pretty close to one milligram um, per per mil of you know your oils and things. I think it's close to a, a, a one. How would you feel as a doctor? You know, say if you had something that was under that, would, would you feel comfortable? You know like how, how, how does that kind of feel for you with your- oh it's, it's uncomfortable because i don't know for sure you know it's 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 that what that gray area and i don't want to be responsible for for patients losing their license so you know again I, I talked to him about um not driving have someone drive them skipping your dose to drive you know or taking your medicine if it's got thc in it um till after they get done driving or back home or, you know, split dosing using a product with low, low THC, like less than one um, or 1% and, and using that during the day while they're out and about and then using a, a higher THC at, at nighttime. So, um, yeah, I'm not comfortable 
yet prescribing a certain amount of THC until we get some standardization or some data. Really. Yeah. And are, there, are there certain types of products you tend to gravitate more towards or? I think all of us really use oils mainly. Uh, I think just because of our indications and, and that's that um, onset or a rash, rather duration of action, um, like a s- slow release, you know, tablet. Um, patients benefit most from that. So I think I prescribe mostly oil, um, but, you know, have certainly started prescribing more dried flour and, and other products, just as I've been uh, more comfortable prescribing them and seeing results. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I got. Yeah, nice. Um, I just had a question about, you know, we were talking before about, what's in the news Um, and because this is an alternative medicine podcast. I mean, I think it was earlier in February, the TGA handed down an interim decision that basically said, we're not interested in down scheduling psilocybin, otherwise, you know, magic mushrooms um, or MDMA um, active ingredient in ecstasy Uh, for any therapeutic use. So they're still going to remain schedule nine prohibited substances Mm -hmm. and lining up to applaud that interim decision was the uh, Royal Australian New Zealand college of psychiatrists. Yes. Um, So I guess my question is just around the way that, you know, leading industry, I guess, how would you describe these professional associations of, um, you know, certain clinical specialties um, seem to be really restrained in their support, <laughs> to put it diplomatically, towards these alternative medicines. Um, I know you probably won't have much, if at all, clinical experience dealing with MDMA or psilocybin, but what are your thoughts on those emerging medicines? And uh, I think it's like- awesome. I think it's awesome. And we've, we've got to have um, these talks, these uncomfortable, you know, talks about it. We've got to, we've got to, um, push, push the space forward with other therapies and I'm all for it. Absolutely. And there, there has, there is data, although not, not the big data that, you know, randomized placebo controlled stuff that we all like to see for our new therapies. But um, I think it opens the door. It sets up the stage for very similarly for use and unapproved um, medication, but we're able to access it in the right way for the right indication. I, I applaud it. I think it's great. And I intend to do it myself. Absolutely. Really? I intend to prescri- absolutely. I'm, 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 I think um, that will be my next potential, um, you know, therapy that I, I myself, um, you know, educate myself on and get get comfortable with because I think that's important for to to um, give our patients that other option so I'm, I'm, I'm listening and, and I'm going to be reading a lot about it and watching that space for sure over the next couple of years well there is a there's a big conference in Melbourne uh, I was I was signed up for the mind medicine conference in November but um, you know, the COVID thing happened. So we, my wife and I were both going to go because my, my wife is in, in mental health. Uh, she's a clinician as well. So we were both really, really interested to, to hear what they had to say about it. So I'm coming boys. Yes. That is awesome news because 
Yeah, I'm planning to go myself. Um, I think it's going to be wonderful. We've got the guy who's, uh, I think his name's Rick Doblin or something. He's, you know, really championed the, the maps studies that are occurring internationally and looking into all of this. Um, How but cool. Just, yeah. Like, cool. It's, amazing. It's, it's awesome. And, you know, I, you know, even hearing about, yeah, just there's so much coming out. I, I learned today that you know, a lot of the research in that space is coming, you know, from psilocybin research more mm. so than LSD. And from a practical level, that's partially because LSD trips typically go twice as long as psilocybin. So, you know, you have to pay twice as, as much for your clinical research stuff and you know, all that stuff. But it's, it's really, um, you know, it's, it's emerging and it's helping people. I know US veterans um, are getting heaps of help with their PTSD. But um, yeah, I don't and, know. And, ket- and ketamine. Ketamine yeah. too. Yeah, actually, when I was in hospital for for the surgery, I was in a ward with a guy who had just chronic pain uh, in his you know testicular region for about seven years, and he was coming in for his very first ketamine infusion um, at the hospital, and I got to actually be there. What? Tell yeah, ketamine yeah. infusion. I'm like, that's illegal. I mean, I knew people doing that back in the day, but oh, yeah, it wasn't sure. done in a therapeutic context. But, um, <laughs> but you know, the um, it was this guy got so much relief off that. So it is nice to see all these, um, you know, these emerging therapies being taken out of the the world of prohibited and illicit substances. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's where cannabis was. It's where cannabis was years ago, and and. Yeah, look, I think I think it's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll um, we'll definitely have to uh, to catch up at the conference, buddy. Yeah, the conference in November in Melbourne. But uh, Mitch, did you have any more questions for Maddie before we let him go? I'm sure we'll get him back on for another episode. Oh man, get me on! I love it. This is great. <laughs> Amazing. I, I'm just uh, well. There is a, a nice little question which we seem to have been capping off, uh, or we have done at least once, which is somewhat to do with the future of cannabis in Australia, at least. Um, if you had to guess when we would go recreational <laughs> yep. at all, yep. what would be your estimate? I would say five, five years. Now, would it be for cannabis altogether or do you think CBD would go first, then THC? Oh, definitely CBD first. I think they've, they've kind of set that up, haven't they, with, with the, um, you know, the over-the-counter um, yeah you know, CBD rulings down, down scheduling. So I think CBD will definitely be first. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I think, I think it's being set up right now, legislation wise in order to happen. And I, I think it's a really, I think it's a, a good idea. Um, you know, we, we can delve into that at some point together, maybe in a future podcast, but um, yeah, I think it's going to happen within, within five, I would say, if not a little bit after that. I just had an image actually of like sort of circa 2026 and, you know, maybe all three of us are together when the announcement finally comes through that it's gone recreational and we can, uh, you know, all have a bit of a party. Maybe I'm I'm, I'm down for that. We'll be, uh, we'll be doing it over maybe not a beer next time. Who knows? (laughs) We'll have to see, won't we? Amazing. Well, Maddie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, I knew this was going to be a ripping episode. Lived Man, up my expectations. too fast, but God, let's do it again. Yeah, we will. We'll we'll schedule a, a sequel for sure. It's been honestly just 
you know, a beacon of wisdom on all of this. It's so good to get your clinical insights um, and just to, just to talk to you again. Yeah, boys, it's, it's a pleasure and I love what you're doing. Like I said, and um, anytime let's, let's do it again. That sounds great. All right. Well, till the next time we'll catch you later. Sounds good guys. Be well. All right. Thanks, buddy. Bye.